Hello and welcome to the September edition of Metro Cinema Presents Close Up, which is now on the Alberta Podcast Network as well, powered by ATB. Uh, my name is Owen, I'm a projectionist at Metro Cinema, also the host of Metro Cinema Movie Trivia at the Tavern on White. And joining me today is this guy. Hi, I'm Will. Yeah. I uh, scoop popcorn. Yes, you do. Classic. Hey, I'm Heather. I am the vice president of the Metro Board, the chair of the programming committee as well. Uh, I'm Talisha. I'm a house manager and the communications specialist. As usual, we'll be hearing music from Matthew Belton of Mangled Tapes and a variety of guises. Leonard J. Paul, Soft Ions, Pigeon Breeders and Boosh and uh, whoever else I can find as well. Who all very generously donate music for the uh, for the show, which is fantastic. Uh, what else can I tell you before we start? That's pretty much it, isn't it? Am I forgetting anything? Don't think so. But yeah, we don't have as many guest programs this month because uh, it's uh, in the middle of changing over to the uh, to the new season, I suppose. Yeah. And to do that every year, we have a season launch. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, the Wizard of Oz this year. It is free admission. This is a, a kind of a reoccurring event we've been doing for the last few years. Uh, it's a little bit of a fundraiser for Metro, and it is a opportunity to toot our own horn and, um, you know, let people know what is to come in the next year of programming. Obviously, we don't know everything that we're going to screen for the next year, but because we have that guest programmer um, call that we do, then um, we can kind of tease a little bit of, of what we expect to be programming throughout the year. So you come, you find out what's what's to come, and then, yeah, there's a silent auction. I think maybe singing, is it by donation? I, th- I think it's, it's te- te- pay what you can. Pay what you can. So when is that? That's uh, that's September the 6th. The 6th. And it's pretty much, a, it's a launch weekend. We've got Rocket Man, which is part of our Metro Movie Party series as well, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, we showed Bohemian Rhapsody as well for the mm-hmm. party as well, uh, last one. It's the cartoon serial party. Oh, the serial weekend. three hours, nearly, of um, retro cartoons. It's uh, two to two and a half, usually. Okay. Again, the length is also something we don't know until the the curator of that kind of finishes the cut that she's doing it's the strangest thing i just turn up on a saturday morning and there's two and a half hours of cartoons there yeah and, and just, commercials like and commercials psas commercials. yeah mm-hmm. yeah i don't i've i find it fun i think like I, part of the appeal is that you don't know what's it's very similar to being a kid and turning on saturday morning tv and not you might know like which shows but you know but it's not like now where you go to YouTube and or Netflix and you pick like the exact cartoon episode that you want. No. If you are a cartoon watcher. And there's all the cereal you can eat. How much does it cost to come into that thing? It's sixteen for adults, fourteen students and seniors, twelve dollars for children. Unlimited cereal. Unlimited cereal. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. You don't need to. You can um, just turn up on Saturday the seventh and it'll all be there. <laughs> <laughs> we also have gluten-free cereal and milk alternatives for people who have allergies or food sensitivities. Like water. <laughs> <laughs> if one cartoon from your childhood could screen as the Saturday morning cartoon, yes. which, which would it be? It's actually, I have, a, I have an answer. We, uh, so a lot of, often in, on Saturday mornings we'll show the, uh, the real family cinemas when they pretty much always take place. Mm-hmm. And uh, we sometimes will show cartoons before... Uh, just to keep people entertained. I have to choose things that are not... Uh, if I had the choice, it would be Ren and Stimpy. Okay. Um, but I've tried showing not that. Not really a be, kid's cartoon. <laughs> it fe- for, I watched it when I was yeah, a kid, and it I feels too. like a children's show, but it's really not. The Tick as well, I quite enjoyed oh, The Tick. Oh, cool, yeah, The yeah. Tick is good. There's this like classic Australian show called The Tweenies. 
Okay. I was really into that. It's like four people in like big mascot-esque costumes playing like tweens, as the name would suggest, but they're like seven feet tall, so it's... Like tweens as in people between the ages of 10 and 12? I think so, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, like cool teens, but younger and fake. Interesting. There's this one episode where the dad, he goes to a restaurant and he orders a cheese sandwich and it is just breaded cheese and it's one of the most iconic moments in my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) What's uh, what's your cartoon? I I don't really know. I think a lot of them have not aged that well. Like Mm -hmm. the X-Men cartoon or um, even Gargoyles. We did Gargoyles is good. We did... She doesn't really play 90s cartoons in that, um, I guess, Mm -hmm. too, too... close with licensing or the ability to get it but the, I think the last one did actually have a Gargoyles episode in it. I would like to rewatch that. I remember when it first came out and I was such a Star Trek The Next Generation fan and yeah. I immediately recognized three of the same, <laughs> three of the actors were doing voice the vo- yeah. voices on Gargoyles. When I went to the Saturday morning serial party they played the original Astro Boy which was pretty cool actually but I was a big fan of the 80s version okay. when I was a kid I don't know mm-hmm. if it's good but I like have a lot of nostalgia just about how like the closing credits of that show. Yeah. I actually I quite used to like Visionaries. Did anyone see that? It was these guys had this, these staffs and they would say something like a uh, you know a, a spell and then they would turn into the animal on their staff and one guy turned into a mollusk. <laughs> it was really weird. I don't know. He would just walk around really slowly. Um, oh, they had powers as well. So he he was a mollusk that could read minds. Yeah, or make you do things. And then there was a guy that was a lion. He was just super angry, I guess. Mm. <laughs> Did you ever watch uh, Rocco's Modern Life? I think so. I was thinking Rocco's about Modern that Life one. I'm like, is that a kid's one or is it slightly more? It's a bit, I think it's a notch below Red and Stimpy yeah. in yeah. terms of how um Because there was still some weird stuff. It is for children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. it's good though. Remember the theme tune and everything. Really? Yeah. Do you want to sing it for us? No, I yeah. can't. Oh. I'm afraid I can't do that. No, please. No. <laughs> All right, well, that's the launch weekend. To sort of keep it easy, I think we're just going to kind of move through the calendar as I can see it in front of me. So we're showing Midsummer, which has finished its main run, which is the uh, follow-up to Hereditary. Ari Aster. Ari Aster. It's got like I hear it's got like kind of a Wicker Man kind of feel to it. That seems to be the the kind of uh, the overarching you know um, opinion. Yeah, I read this article where he talked about all of the films that he watched in preparation for making the movie. Uh, apparently, the f- one film he made the crew watch was uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Okay. Because it was like they were building this whole little community as part of the movie or something. And then there was this documentary called A Married Couple, which is kind of this very intimate portrait of like a relationship falling apart, which is what kind of what the movie is about, I think. So This is what someone had to say about Midsommar. Uh, Alan Clarke in 1974. Pagan horror is an insidious genre based on the Western world's inability to face its own history of colonial violence and the systemic demonization of non-Christian religions, which is inextricably linked to imperialist expansion. Ari Aster in 2019. Damn, those pagans are spooky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the article I I read, he just talked about specifically trying to avoid that interpretation. Mm. Yeah, like he really didn't want, he really didn't want it to come across like this mystical exoticizing of pagan religion. We 
have uh, uh, Bunuel in the Labyrinth of the Turtles, which is, uh, as far as I know, it's a new film, it's an animation, um, but that has uh, given us some cause to show uh, a couple of Louis Bunuel films as well. The last couple of months we showed uh, Pasolini, we had uh, the documentary Pasolini with uh, Willem Dafoe, uh, the Gospel Corn St. Matthew and Arabian Nights, mm-hmm. which was uh, presented by uh, Maggie Hardy, who also does um, Silent Sundays and a whole host of other things here. Before that we had the Cassavetes retrospective, which was hosted by Dylan. And so I guess each month we're going to kind of have a, a, a introductory couple of films to a, a particular filmmaker, and this month is, is Louis Manuel, and we have Belle du Jour. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the only one we're showing? Or have we got that and uh, in Chan and the Lou as well? But we're playing them together. Yeah, we're playing mm-hmm. them together. Okay. Uh, uh, who's who's seen uh, Belle du Jour? Who, well, who likes Bunuel, generally speaking? Is it, is that I do like yeah? Bunuel, yeah. I think it's just an unfortunate reality of the population of Edmonton that we can't like go more deeper into a lot of these filmmakers works a lot of the time Um, there's just not the community there to support those kinds of screenings but you know I think for any uh, anyone who is like kind of trying to familiarize themselves with uh, like the history of film um, and Shannon Deleu is like kind of an essential piece of cinema that you know was hugely controversial when it came out it is like I, I find Benwell pretty funny in an absurd land without bread. That's what I'm thinking of. That's a very funny film. What's it about? Uh, it land is without bread. Ca- yeah, it's kind of a, a sort of ethnographic documentary. But I remember there being a really unusual scene of him. He films a goat falling down a cliff, <laughs> and he just the way that he manages to follow it just on its way down. It's uh, it's painful, but also it's quite funny at the same time. Like it's. <laughs> You know, I feel like I've heard you talk about yeah. this before. Yeah, he's uh, he's got an unusual sense of humor, that guy. Yeah, you know. well, and I think, you know, on Chandelou, is it a, is it about anything? Or, is, you know, I think it's it's kind of just a bunch of dream logic. The, yeah. the first yeah. scene is the infamous, like, person getting their eye cut open. Yes, um, yeah. It's a sort of archetypal art house yeah. uh, student film, which you, you kind of, it's sort of introductory, you know. But pe- critics were very mad at it, I yeah. think. Um, um, and then Belle I think, is kind of more representative of his like mid to late career work, which has more of a clear plot line, but is still using surrealism to mm. kind of show what people's inner psychology is, what's motivating them. Well, that was, uh, so uh, Belle du Jour is 1967, and Shannon Deleu was in, from 1929. Yeah. So, there's quite a lot of time between those two films. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it was also his first film. Yeah. Um, and I guess you can kind of tell that by watching it. It's 16 minutes as well, so it's you know, not much to endure, really. But it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a striking, very striking uh, imagery throughout. And, yeah, the, the infamous slicing open of the eye. Mm-hmm is uh, still unusually difficult to watch yeah. despite the fact that you know that it isn't really happening it's uh, I think it's quite enjoyable yeah, yeah. Mm. to clarify the reference to goats falling down mountains Bunwell's 1933 film Land Without Bread does indeed show such a thing but the crucial piece of information missing from that memory is that it was staged by Bunwell himself who not only arranged for the merciless slaughter of the goat but also covered an ailing donkey with honey so he could film it being stung to death by bees the film focuses on the Lazerdes region of Spain and the intense poverty of the occupants of the township of La Alberca in which it is filmed. 
Intended as a surrealist approach to anthropological filmmaking, Bunuel also uses it to parody exaggerated travelogue films of the time, partly an effort to reveal the breadth of tragedy in his own country, but also received as an exploitative experiment on those in economic crisis. Land Without Bread was subsequently banned for three years in Spain. That aside, do make sure to come and see his surrealist debut in Chien Andalou, written by himself and Salvador Dali, screening with 1967's Belle de Jour, possibly his most successful and famous film. Visit metrocinema.org for dates and times. So we're showing on the, the same weekend a new film called Luz, which is directed by... Tillman Singer and uh, Talisha you were saying something about this earlier as a student film uh, it was a graduate thesis project okay that was turned into a f- no it uh, the whole thing I guess was actually the oh right was okay. the thesis project I oh. thought it was like it was um, a shorter thing than after that turned into a larger one but it seems like the whole film was the was the full project okay yeah so it's from 2018 and it's uh, yeah the thesis is a homage to 80s European horror films and it runs at 70 minutes I like that (laughs) (laughs) I like a 70 minute horror film so there's this horror movie Possession Possession so just when you talk about like 80s European horror movies Possession is one I've always been trying to see like just waiting to come across a copy to watch this one because I've heard that it's quite cool and surreal and it's there's a woman with a doppelganger and then this it's about a possessed woman yeah so I don't know it seems like maybe there's some kind of uh, maybe some, some parallels those. yeah there's actually uh, Kevin was talking to you about Possession the other day yeah I um, keep seeing it come up on lists of I think it's just been maybe kind of, maybe it's just been re-released or like uh, reissued on Blu-ray or something like that mm-hmm. but it's got it's got Sam Neill in it as well yes I like Sam Neill. Sam Neill. I like Sam Neill. <laughs> Old mate Will Sam Neill. I, one time, have been to Sam Neill's vineyard. Have you really? <laughs> I have. <laughs> was he there? He wasn't there, no. What were you doing there? My Drink, mother, not drinking. Not drinking, no. My mother was organising a festival in the town in which Sam Neill's vineyard was. Okay. And there was a cooking thing hosted by a celebrity chef that was at Sam Neill's vineyard. Wow. Did you learn how to cook? I didn't know. I was like eight years old. Yeah. That's a f- that's <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, look at that, eh? Yeah, I like Sam Neil. Who doesn't? I think there's probably someone, but I really like Sam Neil. I love In the Mouth of Madness. It's one of my favourites. Mm. It's such a daft film. It doesn't quite work. There's a lot wrong with it, but somehow it does. It does it. It does it for me. Mm. It's great. I like Jurassic Park. I like Jurassic Park too. <laughs> <laughs> And Event Horizon. I'm a big oh, fan yeah, of Oh, yeah, I've never uh, seen that. Oh, that's a very good one. That, that was uh, somebody was post. You know those things that people do on Facebook, post 10 villains uh, for you know each day and or whatever? Tag someone. Yeah, exactly. First villain, I think, was, uh, was the Event Horizon itself. How old were you when you saw it first? Because I feel like it's one of these movies that people see when they're like a tween and, then, <laughs> yeah. and it traumatizes them. Yeah. I feel like I was about 18 right. or something like that. Yeah. See, I don't um, think I've seen it. Yeah, have you not? So. Oh, it's Sam Neill Gold and Larry Fishburne's in it, who's in Apocalypse Now. Tie-in. Wow. <laughs> Back when he still was credited as Larry Fishburne. Correct. What's he credited as now? Lawrence. Lawrence. Oh, Lawrence. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. He <laughs> <Yeah>, was disgusted. <laughs> uh, Event Horizon was also directed by Paul Anderson. Paul Anderson, but who not made... Paul Thomas Anderson. No, no, but right. Paul Anderson, who made uh, Resident Evil yeah. and... Uh, those kinds of films <laughs> yeah those it's ones just, yeah no event event horizon was i think a high point for him well we're we talking about Sam Neill. 
Possession. Possession. Because we're talking about possession. Because because uh, because it, it, about yeah. this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, it's going to happen. Uh, Sunday the eighth, I believe, is the is the first time we're showing Luz, but it's around. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, Sunday the eighth, and then we've got it on Tuesday the tenth as well, both at nine thirty, and on Thursday. In that week as well, on uh, on Wednesday the eleventh, we've got. Uh, an annual thing that we do mm-hmm. called Blue Review. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and uh, when I introduced Dylan, when we did the, uh, the Cassavetes interview, I recognised him from one of the films. Yeah. <laughs> and so you introduced him as, as having a, made porn? Uh, as, a, as an actor in local porn. What is Blue Review for anyone that, that I don't really so know? I, I was at the first Blue Review, I think. Okay. Yeah, so I can talk about Go it. Go for it. And it was packed. Like, that theater was... Was it the first? It might have been the second. Um, but it's it's it used to be host kind of a thing that View Magazine put on. Right, and okay. View Magazine is no more. So well, I assume Days is... Um, it's still host it's a uh, some of the people that used to work at view right. started their own publishing company and so they kept on some of the things like blue review it's um one of the ones right. so it's still people that worked for view just not right view publishing. under that that heading yeah and so i think the idea of it was to be like you know independent erotic film that is creative or artistic or funny like it's it was basically I think they were really trying to get people who had like aesthetic and creative um, ideas to try dabbling in in X-rated film. Yeah, uh, it doesn't have to be X-rated though. The year that I went, I think only a couple of the films actually w- would qualify as X-rated. A lot of them, um, I, like, would be. I, 14a yeah uh, you know there's a lot cheeky, of comedy yeah. cheeky sex comedy right um so it's a it's a variety but you definitely have to go knowing that you may actually see something explicit something like a lot a lot of it's fairly experimental the yeah stuff that it is, is ex- yeah. explicit but yeah i don't I, I think this is something that's been done in other cities like isn't there that there's that movie hump day that's like basically based on this premise that these two guys decide they're going to make a film for such a competition yeah. because there is a prize. There are a couple of prizes. Like there's usually a first, second and third cash prize. Yeah, okay. I think it's $1,000 for first yeah. place. Yeah. Wow. You should make one. That's giving me, that's <laughs> giving me food for thought. It's 10 or so films. I don't know how many it is exactly, but it's 10 or so films, uh, short films that are yeah, locally made. Uh, a couple of my friends have made films for there and the, uh, for that in the past. Mm. And, uh, I don't know what the selection process is like, but they kind of like, there's a broad, you know, variety of stuff. Some of it, as you say, is more X-rated than other stuff. Some of it's animated. Some of it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's it's mostly a fun night. Yeah. Well, it's really an event too, because they've got other stuff going on. There's, um, I believe, some burlesque performances. Yeah. Uh, raffle beer. A raffle beer. A raffle beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the year that I went, the pre-show was a lot of these like public domain erotic films from like the like the early days of cinema like things okay. that would have been made in the turn of the century and they're really fun to watch because there's they're just less I don't know like everyone in the film seem to be like not taking themselves very seriously or like trying to put on a performance yeah it's just people 
being sexual with a camera on them and they're kind of maybe like blushing and laughing about it while they're doing it and it's yeah it's like very endearing like, yeah yeah not to be said for vintage porn yes <laughs> <laughs> that's on uh, that's on wednesday the 11th at 7 p.m i don't know why we're not following that with zach and mary make a porno the Kevin Smith classic, but uh, we are following it with Rock and Roll High School. Okay. Another 40th anniversary screening. So uh, then uh, coming to the end of that week, we also have a new one called Aquarella. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Which is directed by Victor Kosakowski. From massive waves to melting ice, filmmaker Victor Kosakowski travels around the world to capture stunning images of the beauty and raw power of water, which sounds very much like another film called Watermark, which I have seen, and I know you've seen, Talisha, because it was the image that you used for the portraits that I took, mm-hmm. which were projected onto you. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, uh, yeah, I chose that one because Edward Bertinsky, one of my favorite photographers. Antropocine. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one. Yes. That movie, though, was more about sort of the the impact that water and humans had on each other. And it seems like Aquarella is more just about the sheer power of okay. water in nature rather than the things humans do, like creating dams and reserves and wasting it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Batinsky's always interested in uh, in man-made incursions in the yeah. earth, isn't he? You see, manufactured landscapes was another mm. one that sort of delved into that a little bit. Um, but what were you saying about the trailer has like a really heavy uh, score to it? Oh, well, so the uh, the song in the trailer is by a Finnish symphonic metal band called Apocalyptica. <laughs> oh, uh, I know. And they're, <laughs> they're they great. They like, covers of, of like metal bands, but right? yeah. just instrumental. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I had friends in high school listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> I still listen to that. Yeah, yeah. So beautiful. Yeah, um, of, often Saturday, uh, Sunday mornings, are, uh, the lobby is filled with that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. Also, Aquarella was. This is a weird note. It was shot at ninety-six frames per second, mm-hmm. um, except that there are so few projectors out there that can actually screen that. So. Any any theater that you'd be seeing it at would probably be 48 frames per second or even 24. Yeah. So until we get those fancy projectors with the 96 frames, why? <laughs> well, it's it's uh, you know it's ambitious, and uh, I like that they're trying something new. So, but it's interesting to me because when like you know the Hobbit movies were done at 48 frames, yeah. and like I find that aesthetic like looks really bad it's very off-putting apparently some people can't see it's like you're either your brain interpret not every brain interprets it the same way i think so some people see the difference in a bad way and some people don't really even know what the difference is it's kind of like when you do like they have like motion softening on tv screens Mm. like the the soap opera effect is one that really really bothers me i can't handle it like when i see some i don't know if it's the tv itself or like sometimes i'll see a movie that i know what it looks like normally with that on it's just it's so off-putting i can't do it yeah it's so it's, it's just interesting when filmmakers make this choice when like for me it, it only detracts from <laughs> what I'm seeing but I mean like you, there's if you were doing slow motion and stuff it makes sense to do to uh, to shoot frames fast. yeah Aquarella 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 okay Aqua, Aqua? we'll just I don't know. we'll go with that for now it's not about the band Aqua 
It's, <laughs> it's not about the band Aqua, unfortunately. Yeah, they played recently. At the, uh, they did. They River, played River here yeah. just yeah. a few weeks they ago. They were the closing out night of Katie's. Oh, my God. And they were also the same night. Same weekend as Marilyn Manson. What? Like, what? how do you choose? Aqua or Marilyn Manson? You stay home. I didn't what? go to, I didn't go <laughs> to either, but I live above Kinsman, so we got the free concert in our apartment, essentially. Wow. So that's screening on Thursday 19th at 7 o'clock, and then probably more um, than that. Other dates. Other dates as well. As always, you'll have to go to metrocinema.org to find out more details about things that I can't remember. <laughs> Now, hear this. Produced by the Edmonton Community Foundation, the Well-Endowed Podcast is hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and is produced by Lisa Pruden. The show explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Check out the latest episode, which is also the third in the series, It Takes a Community, featuring longtime Edmonton Strathcona MP Linda Duncan. Go to and subscribe at the wellendowedpodcast.com Tattoo Uprising which is a documentary about the uh, culture of tattoos I suppose the trailer doesn't give away a whole lot but I do know that a lot of the film was shot by Les Blanc, uh, who is, uh, he made another film called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe mm-hmm. Werner Herzog bet Errol Morris that he couldn't finish the film Gates of Heaven and uh, he did and he said, that, you know, if you if you do finish it, I'll eat my own shoe. So they boiled a shoe. Stage. And he did it on stage, and yeah, at his shoe. And that was filmed by Les Blank, who made some of this film. Werner Herzog also has a Ed Hardy tattoo, which Les Blank shot. <laughs> so <laughs> when uh, Werner Herzog made Fitzcarraldo, there was a documentary that's being made kind of alongside it as well. Sim- similar, again, Heard I suppose, to... Yeah, mm-hmm. not, not uh, unlike... Hearts of it, Darkness. Unlike Heart of the Heart of Darkness. <laughs> yeah, because it was another troubled film. Yes. The insanity of the shoot was just too yeah, much he, like, to bear. Yeah, like threatened to kill. Yeah, uh, yeah. Klaus. Klaus Kinski, and, and I think maybe some people died. Some people may have died trying to get the boat over the mountain. <laughs> it's an incredible film. Yeah, I, I like, he's also you know, published his diary about this as well. Same name, okay. Burden of Dreams. It's like his diary that he was writing in. Like, wow. The okay. sh- production, yeah. But at some point during that, um, uh, Werner Herzog reveals his uh, his tattoo. Mm-hmm. His Ed Hardy tattoo. The trailer doesn't show it though. The trailer doesn't show it. It does, yeah. It's like it's you know that's a secret. <laughs> Go and watch the, the film movie. for that. But that sounds pretty interesting to me. I don't know. How do you how do you feel about tattoos? How do you feel about that? There's a couple of tattoos around the table. There is a couple of tattoos around the table. I'm looking at you, Talisha. <laughs> Why are you? <laughs> you got tattoos all over yourself. Look at you. Yeah, I've got quite a few tattoos. You do. I, yeah, I suppose a lot of the the reason I get tattoos is purely aesthetic rather than cultural and spiritual. Um, it's probably for the best. That being said, like for the documentary, I was hoping, I think, that it covered more of not just like the culture in North America, but just sort of around the world, like mm-hmm. for tattoos where it is part of um, the culture and spiritual, just for the origins of that. And then kind of into the evolution of what it's become in the Western world. But, yeah. I mean, maybe it does, but the trailer doesn't doesn't really seem like that's what it's going to do. No, no, it doesn't. Going back to Les Blank, we did we screened a couple of Les Blank films at Metro a few years back. Okay. And like one of them was Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe and the other one, I'm, maybe there was more than two, but the other one I went to see was um, 
garlic is as good as 10 mothers okay. and it's um, <laughs> a great name for a film yeah like, yeah. yeah it's from the 70s and this is like a saying about basically about how good garlic is for you and it's about a bunch of like garlic lovers it's almost like a hippie cult okay. from my memory but i just remember someone i know had kind of tweeted at metro like will you be serving garlic at the screening and sure enough we had like a like a toaster oven in the theater toasting <laughs> cloves of garlic during the movie and then it was like filling the theater it like the the scent of cooking garlic was kind of growing throughout the screening and then um at the end of the screening you could get yourself a clove of garlic i really like that as a sort of expanded cinema experience it was really cool the introduction of smell-o-vision as well yeah we exactly Curate yeah. that next year. Yeah, yeah. No, we should. And it, then we should. John Waters was the one who was trying to do that when, with the scratch yes, and sniff. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great doc. And there's, uh, I've also seen John Waters uh, at the Garneau, which was like. Have you? Yeah. That was a long time ago. I think it was in high school. Wow. When he came uh, and just did like one of his John Waters stand up and talk for two hours. And it's amazing. He's a fascinating guy. Yeah. 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 But anyway, yeah, the, that garlic is as good as Ten Mothers is in that whole less blank box set you can get from Criterion there's like a bunch of good subculture documentaries that's kind of that's kind of what Les Blank does so it's interesting that he's attached to this one okay in that week we also have Love and Tosha which is about the short-lived acting career of Anton Yelchin who died he was run over by a car wasn't it? I believe so yeah Yeah. it It was a weird like he wasn't run over there was a defect in the jeep line and it was in park or something and it rolled it backed up on its own and it pinned him to the fence wow okay so apparently so so his parents were contacted by John Voight who had worked on on a short film with him called Court of Conscience and they reached out to a friend of his called Drake Deramus who had made uh, like crazy with uh, Yelchin in it as well but he felt it was too close to him to actually make the film so it ended up being uh, passed on to uh, Garrett Price. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's one of these stories where he died right at, like, the beginning of what seemed to be, like, the peak of his career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, there, you know, it was, he came out of nowhere and was suddenly in a ton of movies and... Uh, yeah, some really, really big films. He was in, I guess, most people probably know him from Star Trek mm-hmm. films, which would have been massively, you know, bankable. In his short career, Anton Yelchin appeared in around 50 features and short films combined, as well as several TV roles between 2000 and his death in 2016. Though relatively little is known of Yelchin's artistic pursuits outside of film and television, it is known that he practiced photography and in fact his work was exhibited posthumously in New York and LA under the title Anton Yelchin Provocative Beauty. The consensus thus far is that Love and Tosha reveals parts of his character and personality that may have otherwise remained obscured and judging by the large number of friends, actors and artists involved in the film, it's also clear that he was on the verge of really carving out a unique artistic identity for himself. Love and Tosha opens on Thursday the 19th at 9pm, then Sunday the 22nd at 7pm, and it's also screening on Wednesday the 25th as part of our new Welcome Wednesdays at 2pm. For those that don't know, these screenings are open to anyone who may benefit from a gentler, non-judgmental atmosphere, including, but not limited to, people living with dementia, people with an autism spectrum condition, people with learning difficulties, those with sensory or communication difficulties, parents with young babies, and anyone who feels they would benefit from a more supportive and inclusive experience. That's Wednesdays at 2pm. 
Close-Up is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which hosts a wonderful range of homegrown content from film, pop culture, and the arts to sports, education, and politics. You can find podcasts of all shapes and sizes at albertapodcastnetwork.com. So in August, we showed Slumber Party Massacre, which was directed by... Amy Holden-Jones. Yes. She was offered the choice to either direct that film as her first feature film or to edit E.T. That's right. That was movie trivia too. That was movie trivia. So uh, Everything's coming together. (laughs) It's useful that I learn these things Mm -hmm. sometimes. Uh, But we are showing E.T., on Saturday 21st. Isn't that weird? So, well, I rewatched this recently for the first time since I was very, very, very young. I have not seen it since I was very, yeah, very young. Yeah, like yeah. I had vague memories of it, but, you know, now I have a child, so it's How like, did she like it? She liked it, yeah. I think she saw a picture of a little baby the other day and she said it looked like E.T., so it stuck <laughs> with her. <laughs> but what okay. I love about it, like, I mean, I don't know. In some ways, it's so weird and small, in like the scope of what actually happens I haven't watched Stranger Things yet but like I know that this is the aesthetic that Stranger Things is really gaga nostalgic for like the opening scene is just a bunch of teenage boys smoking and eating pizza and playing cards in this really interestingly designed totally of the era house in LA Hills or something it's just everything about how it's shot the scene just doesn't exist in movies today where it's not necessarily exposition or anything it's just setting the scene for what the life of these characters is there's this backstory of the fact that the kid's father has seemingly abandoned the family and they don't know if he's ever coming back and even if this something about the story doesn't feel like quite complete to me but it's the the feeling of it that makes it a very memorable film okay yeah and just something it just it just feels like something that's kind of been lost from contemporary movies there's a part where drew barrymore's character gets left alone in the house because the mother has to go run an errand and i think she's like four (laughs) (laughs) and you just would not do that today but it just feels very natural for the 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 time that the movie's set in and you know like there's a scene where et gets drunk and just like there's just all this stuff that it just yeah feels a little bit more unhinged than any kind of kids movie now. Worth noting as well, it was not actually Drew Barrymore's first feature film appearance. No. Her first film was Altered States. Wow. And she appears as a baby. Yeah. You did that. I mean, she room. is a baby. She doesn't appear as a baby. Okay, right, <laughs> She's not like... She's the representation She's an of a baby. Playing, you know, an, adult. an adult playing a baby. <laughs> they just dressed her up like a baby. <laughs> She's, so that's a real family cinema. Of course. Yeah, I think it's worth... If you That'd haven't be... seen it since you were young, I think it's worth a visit, a revisit. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And, uh, and later on in that day uh, is They Live, which is part of our... I suppose it's... A weird, so Edmonton Expo is a thing that happens, and we go, we go down there, and we tell people about what we're doing. And we're telling them this time, we're showing They Live. Come see it. Come and see it. Because why wouldn't you want to do that? Yeah. Absolute classic. Well, I haven't seen I it. Have, you I've still s- haven't seen it? I've, what do you mean still? I've seen a single John Carpenter film. and Which it, one did you see? The Thing. Oh, okay. Because Nick, who is a podcast <laughs> regular, <laughs> is a ginormous fan of 
John Carpenter. He is an enormous thing. Carpenter yeah. fan, yeah. It was so, a memorable night. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I right. would say Nick was wearing a jacket. I don't know. We were talking about there's a helicopter jacket thing yeah. in the thing. Well, I guess. Nick was just very drunk. That's and, correct. Uh, just going on about the film and how great it was and how great Kurt Russell is yes. and you yeah. know the usual Nick thing to do. Yeah. Uh, great night. Yeah. So like I don't think it's maybe <laughs> fair to compare They Live and the Thing because I think they're doing really different things. Totally. I like them both, <laughs> but I think They Live is more my favorite. Um, more they, my favorite. they Live. More, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it is so ridiculous and silly, but at the same time, like. Um, and this could be total misinformation that I'm spreading, but I seem to remember <laughs> hearing that it was banned in certain states for its like communist messaging. Okay. Um, because like that really like the whole premise is that, you know, Roddy Piper is this like working class construction worker guy who starts out the movie thinking that, you know, you just got to work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And then he actually finds out that, no, it's all rigged and that yeah. like there's people are brainwashing you so that they can stay in power. And then he, you know, starts shooting them. I seem to remember hearing that the Wachowskis were really inspired by it to make The Matrix. Oh, wow. Okay. And also, if you've ever seen, there's the Zizek film, The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Yes. Is it makes, they Live is yeah. kind of the the film that he uses to tie together. Like, the, he keeps coming back to They Live as the symbol yeah. of what he's talking about with um, how ideology is perpetuated in culture and I mean I don't know what to think of Zizek half the time but he is a lot of fun to watch <laughs> so they live and uh, yeah definitely come and see that yes. if you have not it's uh, it's stellar that, yeah. that is at 9.30 on Saturday 21st and there's a bar which is exactly what you're going to need uh, before you sit down and watch they live John Carpenter's They Live from 1988 is based on Ray Nelson's 1963 short story 8 O'Clock in the Morning has become a cult classic since its release. Despite some consideration as an underrated Carpenter film, it's had quite an impact on pop culture over the years, particularly on street art. You may be familiar with the work of Shepard Fairey, whose use of the word obey in his Andre the Giant has a posse campaign was lifted directly from They Live's iconic imagery and has since been reappropriated throughout Fairey's portfolio, as well as multiple other avenues of graphic design. 2012's The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, directed by Sophie Fiennes and written and presented by philosopher and psychoanalyst Slavoj Žižek, also draws on They Live as a forgotten masterpiece of the Hollywood left. In particular, Žižek centres on Roddy Piper's character Nada being able to observe a hidden reality through the use of a pair of seemingly discarded sunglasses. Zizek states, the sunglasses function like a critique of ideology. They allow you to see the real message beneath all the propaganda, glitz, posters and so on. When you put the sunglasses on, you see the dictatorship in democracy, the invisible order which sustains your apparent freedom. If you haven't seen it, I'd even go as far as to say they live is essential. The 23rd is the proposition which is a staff pick it's uh nicholas johnson who is our uh projectionist he's new nick he's a projectionist as well as old nick he's also a projectionist <laughs> and me but i'm not called nick and there's another one called brad too <laughs> 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 uh but yeah every 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 two months we do a staff pick every two months every two months and so now it's his turn he's chosen the proposition which is uh was written by nick cave and I think it's written by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis as well. well I think both Warren Ellis and Nick Cave did the score for it. Oh, they did the score for it. They both, well, Nick Cave wrote that, and he, they also both did the worked on uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward yeah. Robert Ford, which was shot here. Some of it in Edmonton. Most of it. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. 
Actually, uh, total aside, but Sam Rockwell rented at my video store while that movie was being made multiple times. It's a pretty wonderful Western uh, with a, a rare, actually good performance from Ray Winston. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, has one of the most amazing lines in all of cinema, which is him. Uh, Ray Winston is in, a, in this shack in the middle of nowhere, just looking out at the Red Centre, which is what you call the middle of Australia. And... Um, he just says, Australia, what fresh hell is this? And just looking at the landscape, also having been there and seen it, it kind of is a very appropriate way of describing how it feels. It's just it's inescapable heat. I want to get Will's yeah. is that, opinion on that. That's my fresh take. That's pretty, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Australia is a hot place. It is warm down there. <laughs> from, yeah, from personal experience, it is warm. Yeah. Um. You can sort of really feel... Everything in Everyone's it. Everyone's like dirty and yeah, sweaty. Yeah, it and just, you can kind of smell it, yeah. you know? It just, it feels like something that, it's a good thing we don't have a smell of vision Yeah. For films like That's that. That's one of the ones we do not want it for. No, no, just the sort of, you know, the sound of buzzing flies around food and, and just things. It's just... Just let a bunch of flies into the it's disgusting. Let's, let's release the flies. <laughs> <laughs> we should show the fly and let a fly loose. <laughs> we, uh, that's the thing uh, we don't talk about on the podcast often is the, uh, the annual running of the fly. Uh, we let a fly loose in the streets. <laughs> and we have to run, run away from it. <laughs> Thanks to Chris Morris and the Barassi team for that hilarious line I just stole. John Hillcoat's The Proposition from 2005 stars Guy Pearce and Danny Houston as members of the infamous criminal Burns Brothers gang. The film centres around the moral dilemma of Charlie Burns, played by Pearce, as he is offered a choice to help apprehend his older brother in order to save his younger brother from the gallows. It is a beautifully bleak and uncompromising film, like a fatal searing wound in the blazing desert sun. It's also been commended for its accuracy of its depiction of indigenous Australian culture in the late 19th century, and in fact also stars two acclaimed indigenous Australian actors in David Gulpilil, whose first feature film appearance was in Walkabout in 1971, and Tom E. Lewis, who compared the proposition's depiction of indigenous culture to that of the landmark film from 1978, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, also Lewis's first feature film appearance. As we mentioned, the proposition screens on Monday, September 23rd, so be sure to catch it in its theatrical glory. We've got, to, we've got to draw this to a close. There's lots of other things that we uh, obviously won't have time to talk about. We've got Labyrinth. No, wait. Let's talk about Streetwise. Okay, okay, okay. What? <laughs> what about Freaks and Kim Possible? We've got, let's yeah, just talk yeah. about all of it. Let's talk about, let's talk about, let's talk about Streetwise. Uh, wait, so let's go back. Freaks and Kim Possible? What was the... The director of Freaks... Oh, the director. director. ...is also the director right, right. of the new live-action adaptation of I, I forgot what the connection was. We will, but we will, it's we will come back to that, no. but no, it is to you, and that <laughs> no, is, means that it's important to me. Um, <laughs> Um, but going back in time a little bit, uh, another anniversary screening. It's the 35th anniversary screening of Streetwise, yeah. Heather. Yeah, I. Uh, so this is a documentary uh, from 1984. It was nominated for Best Documentary that year at the Oscars. I caught this, like, my, I think my brother brought home a VHS copy from the library when I was maybe 14 or something. Okay. And it's a it's a documentary about street youth in Seattle mm-hmm. in the eighties, and it grew out of a I think it was a magazine that Mary Ellen Mark was a photographer for uh, was doing a photo series on Life magazine. I think uh, Life magazine, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure if Life was still around at that point. And 
if you've seen Mary, Mary Ellen Mark's work, it's very much photojournalism, a lot of the time dealing with youth in lower income situations, very provocative, kind of confrontational. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it's arguable whether you would find it exploitative in any way. But I just remember this documentary having like a huge impact on me because precisely because it's, it, I think it started out as just, I think Seattle at that time was being touted as the best place to live in America, like yeah. the highest standard of living. And they wanted to show that even in a city like Seattle, there's a lot of people struggling. And I think because youth have this um, often less censored, they're, they're more willing to engage with the camera to talk to interviewers in a way that they're not trying to manage their no. image in the same way. And so I think what they ended up finding was they were the most interesting subjects and, and came to narrow in on on the street youth. Yeah, just when I saw it when I was young, it was it made a huge impression on me. And it's been completely out of distribution ever since. So it never got a DVD release. And so now I think it probably finally will now that Janice has um, re-released it with in this new print. Mm -hmm. There was a sequel actually made in 2016 where it came back to the primary subject of the documentary who in, in Streetwise is a 14-year-old prostitute named Tiny. Yeah, Tiny revisited it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then Mary Ellen Mark died shortly before that rele was released. And she was the wife of Martin Bell who directed uh, Streetwise yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, so I mean it's interesting because I think that a documentary like this probably would not be made today or at least it would there would be a lot more complicated conversation around the ethics of kind of going in and following around these youth yeah but i do think that early documentary that was willing to go there i i think ultimately served a valuable purpose i like to think that maybe they were doing justice and service to the people that they were documenting yeah yeah i mean it'll be interesting to revisit because maybe i'll have a different take on it this time. yeah well and there's yeah. so many great documentaries from kind of like film history that i think we're more likely you know when we do stuff like metro retro and spotlights we we highlight a lot of narrative cinema mm -hmm. and we don't often go back and revisit documentaries from the past like i think um you know we screened gray gardens a few years back oh, i'd love to show that again. yeah that was that's a great film we have like northwest fest has their doc of the month club but yeah. they seem to be focusing mainly on All new release documentaries yeah. but and like i just yeah i think there's something really exciting about going back and watching something that's maybe not contemporarily like you know that's lost some of its relevance but maybe it also hasn't you know mm -hmm. yeah we have i think it's been for a variety of different things we've managed to sort of crowbar documentaries like that in there like style wars is I another one that wars. i really like yeah. the tony silver film um you know but it'd be nice if we had a kind of uh you know perhaps it's a thing we can work towards is having like a you know a regular mm -hmm. slot that is designated just for that for a documentary that is you know from Programming, <laughs> yeah. yes, it has been discussed. I, I mean, I remember also a few years back we did, and Streetwise feels very similar to this. We played this 1950s kind of pseudo dramatized documentary called On the Bowery, okay, which yeah. is about the the Bowery neighborhood in New York. Which oh, would, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and they had basically they started trying to make a documentary, and then what they ended up doing is getting all of these, you know, homeless or semi homeless people to play themselves in kind of scenes where they reenacted situations from their life and yeah. that was another film that um like that you know really left a an impact so. 
Yeah, that'd be. That, I think that'd be a really fascinating thing to try and work towards. That's uh, so. That's Streetwise um, screening on Sunday the fifteenth at three thirty. Uh, definitely come watch that. That's a nice time to come watch a film. The very observant among you may have noticed that we referred to Lawrence Fishburne's appearance in Event Horizon as a tie-in. You might have been thinking, a tie-in to what? Just what exactly are these people talking about? Well, I'll tell you. Occasionally, the films programmed in the coming month are subject to availability or are awaiting confirmation, and one such film for September was the newly released Apocalypse Now Final Cut. I'm pleased to say that it has now been confirmed, and that also it was Lawrence Fishburne's third feature film appearance credited as Larry Fishburne. That was the tie-in, and now here's another one. Mary Ellen Mark, whose photographic work was the basis for Martin Bell's 1988 film Streetwise, which we were just talking about moments ago, was also the set photographer on Apocalypse Now, as well as a whole host of other feature films. I can't say whether or not this was uh, an intentional connection in our programming schedule or sheer blind coincidence, but I like it. Come and see what I can only assume will be Francis Ford Coppola's last revision of his 1979 classic Apocalypse Now, screening on the 31st of August and then the 1st, 2nd and 4th of September. Take yourself to metrocinema.org for times and also make sure you Google the work of Mary Ellen Mark as well because it really is quite stunning. Among the many things we've missed but are still showing are Labyrinth, Forrest Gump, David Crosby, Remember My Name. September's Music Docs is going to be Strange Negotiations, directed by Brandon Vedder, which centres on David Bazan's public loss of faith after rising to fame on the Christian indie rock scene. Marianne and Leonard Words of Love is the latest from Nick Broomfield following 2017's Whitney Can I Be Me, which attempts to shed light on the relationship between Leonard Cohen and his muse Marianne Ellen. We've also got Dexter Fletcher's biographical musical Rocket Man, based on the life of Elton John. That's going to be September's Metro Movie Party, so bring your massive glasses and toupees. And there's also Tony Morrison, The Pieces I Am, directed by filmmaker and portrait photographer Timothy Greenfield Sanders. The film explores the extraordinary life of American novelist, essayist, editor, teacher and Nobel laureate Tony Morrison, who passed away on August 5th. Among a multitude of incredible accolades, she was the first black female editor in fiction at Random House in New York, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and she was also selected by the National Endowment for the Humanities for the Jefferson Lecture, which is the highest honor for achievement in humanities. Just an utterly bewildering human. That is playing for one show only thus far on Sunday the 1st of September at 3.30, so do not miss it. So there's loads to check out. Go to metrocinema.org and uh, that's where you'll find all of the information regarding it. Uh, You can download this thing on loads of places, though. It's on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Breaker, Stitcher, and maybe more than that as well, but I can't remember the names of all of them. Uh, But uh, yes, this has been Metro Cinema Presents Close Up, uh, part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, William. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Heather. Peace. Peace. Nice. (laughs) And uh, thank you, Talisha. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. See you next time.